Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. These are important words, but I'm also curious in the alternative. This story with the Global Peace Summit, I want to clarify, do I understand it right that it will be some sort of a slow boiling platform where nothing will be accelerated because it was uh, announced? It is a slow initiative and nobody is rushing to realize it in the next few months. I think, Nikolai, these will be behind the doors negotiations and it will be that that will result in where we go and how fast. We now have a good chance to sober up because if American aid will be dripping in the current fashion, we'll probably run out of shells by early autumn and missiles as well. And then we'll likely become very agreeable and we'll try to slow down the war and uh, start negotiations or figure something out. I have a big question as to how these office pro-president telegram channels will be pushing new agenda. Because when we realize that we will fail to draft half a million people, and with all the respect to the current fighters and the trenches, we will not be able to provide more to them. And um, it'll be interesting to see how do we end this war, because otherwise there likely will be a physical end. You know, Alexei, honestly speaking, I keep encountering different judgments about the current situation. And just today I read into the headlines of some of the colleagues who are saying it's not even enough for us to get back to the borders of 91. What are these judgments and estimations based on? Nothing, Alexei. I suspect they're not fighting, they're not even on the front. Right, they're just uh, gathering likes, Nikolai. And I'll explain four main reasons for the moods in Ukraine. First of all, hostages. They are hostages of what was said before. Because to change your dress in flight, I think it's only Aristovich apparently who can do that. Because I came out and said, hey, whatever I told you in 22, circumstances changed. Now we're talking the current situation. Because circumstances changed, the players have changed their play and game style, so we're talking about the new ones. And most people, they're not like that. They're, they'll, they're basically, you'll hear that my grandpa was defending back in 1915, and I'm doing the same thing in 2024, and will be holding to the last. So they're the hostages of propaganda. They fail to change vector while they need to. 
Second, they're also afraid about getting a draft notice. And uh, in a couple of days, they will likely find themselves near Lastishkina or Arlova or near Avdiivka. And they're also, to say the least, not ready for that eventuality. Because there are a lot of them, especially in the journalists and other places, who were supposedly drafted, but they're not. They're in the restaurants. They're supposedly on the front, according to papers, but they're in Kiev and they're having lunches and all. So they're afraid that if they will start writing about the real events, their fake service will turn into a real one. And there are a lot of scandals already. Oh, this blogger apparently is in service already. He's uh, supposedly with the Ukraine Defense Forces, but he was not seen there for half a year already. And he's writing it from some nice and warm place. And there are other guys who are just earning money on this and who are making money on YouTube and likes and the rest. And then there is a fourth category whom I like the most. These are the ones who are rushing my Instagram very often and leave their traces saying, Alexei, you are such a wonderful man in 22. We even made a mistake to believe you back then. And now you're a snotty, teary girl who doesn't know what to do about this problem. Me, uh, a very fragile girl, unlike you, I am for the borders of 91 and even further will take Vladivostok two weeks later. And, you know, my friends, my pals check these uh, some of these statements and people who are making them. And look, she is in Vancouver. And then the Instagram is full of, hey, we are in a nightclub, we are on a yacht, we are on a special party. And here's the difference. I'm on my yacht eating nice dinner when I'm telling you, hey, we need to rethink everything. We need to get our shit together and start fighting uh, like we mean it. And they are just don't care. They eat and enjoy the lifestyle and they're basically saying everything will be fine. I'm suggesting these people who post that stuff should talk to our military. They'll tell them about the shells, about the tanks, about the juxtaposition and real power of both sides. Perhaps read deep state publications who do a great work publishing and updating things weekly. They're leaving a lot of recently notes about uh, our troops withdrawing from here, from there, enemy occupying that village and that village, while all of a sudden our troops are withdrawing and retreating. They're less brave? No. They have nothing to fight with and there is nothing in their short perspective coming to help them. So you can be talking about the borders of 91 or Vladivostok, but this is deceiving your expectations. That will be broken in a very harm way, harmful way. And those people who are setting up the plank that high, they're setting a time bomb when reality will catch up with, with all. And reality is likely to catch up very fast, in about two to three months. And if there'll be a little more drip coming from the United States, then maybe in autumn. And when we slam our face into the wall of reality, and people will be in the most difficult shock, post-traumatic shock, when they'll figure out that after reading all that in the Telegram channels and having written all the patriotic posts, they discover that most of that stuff was a lie for which they paid with their destroyed homes, destroyed economy and perspective of leading the country as a crisis of losing it looms over, then those who built up these expectations will be the ones to blame. I did create expectations back in 22, but it was a different situation. When Putin made certain decisions and strategic decisions in Russia, we had time to make our decisions. Our partners had time to support us to the degree we needed. But when the situation changed, I started talking the truth. I've been doing that for quite a while and I'm getting my share of issues related to that, but I know that our conversations are not directed at the likes for tonight. They are directed at the autumn, when we'll smash our face in the wall. And when we'll get up from the ground and we'll be dripping blood from ears, eyes, nose, and we'll start to understand that very soon there is a final fight, somewhere in 2028 or 2032, 
where nobody will be helping us much and we will not be able to pull it through on our own when people and if they realize that that's what it will be interesting when the west will likely fold under the nuclear threat by russia and i give you a hundred percent they will fold that's when everything will be serious and until then yeah of course we can shout that we are fighting for the borders of 91 we're not retreating we're advancing all right and go fight to lastishkina support our troops there or at least talk to people who are doing it about your victories in these conditions right alexei we are actually supporting our defense forces every stream and we are supporting personal requests from different detachments and troops and companies so today you can support 132nd intelligence battalion that um, reconnaissance battalion that is uh, serving in zaporozhye region we do not touch these monies we by the way already gathered money for their vehicle that one was destroyed because they're very active and they're in one of the hottest spots in the south in zaporozhye so please they need money for a new vehicle because vehicle means more ammo coming to them on time means wounded people being evacuated timely to save their lives that's how your money can help our fighters to continue 100 percent all right about the heightened expectations and that swing that our society is on this week is some sort of the biggest swing between two different viewpoints between the most optimistic and most pessimistic and i'm reading bbc here that united states are prognosticating that by the end of march the lack of uh, munitions with ukraine military might become catastrophic about that on the conditions of anonymity two american uh, high level bureaucrats have uh, reported if the congress will not take and will not adopt the package to help Ukraine, it will be likely very difficult in the next two months. The third interviewee said that it's difficult to prognosticate when the situation will change, but right now it's definitely at the breaking point, and it will uh, be worsening over spring and summer. So that period that we're going into is uh, critical. All right, I agree with that estimation with a small correction. Right now, situation is being qualified as difficult or very hard. In a month, it will be qualified as close to catastrophe. In a couple more months, it will be qualified as catastrophic. And by the end of summer, it will be a catastrophe unfolding on the ground if American aid will not come, and if those half a million artillery shells will not be provided to Ukraine somehow, which, by the way, Ukraine produced about 2 million last year and is aiming to produce 2.7 million this year plus Korean shells, which do not fly that well, but still, they fly. So, once again, I'm remi reminding that, as President mentioned in his press conference, the West could only deliver 30% of the promised artillery shells to Ukraine. And that problem we're discussing now is in this uh, situation only because there is no third front like Ukraine and Israel. And who promised that this will not happen? And then those bitty supplies that the west is capable to produce will be spread over three conflicts ukraine israel and the third place hypothetically and then if somehow they manage to cope somebody can create the fourth or the fifth and what do you do then then obviously it will be worse right exactly nikolai that's what i'm saying that behind the conversation that the West produces less than Russia at basically 2.4 million shells versus 300,000, that's about eight times less. So you can exacerbate that by creating another black hole where that one shell that we currently have against eight Russians will be going to. Remember how we moved 50,000 50, shells between us and Israel? That's just for one week of this war. This is basically a sentencing to the Western civilization. And in November, after the attack on Israel, we lost those 50,000 because they were withdrawn to Israel. And Russia is strengthening their position now because they're playing their angle with Global South. They have their strategy of weakening the West. 
and the West is not in a hurry to react to that. They are just starting their concerned conversations. You guys will not have time. They're saying that in five to seven years there will be a conflict with Russia. Well, five to seven months, maybe. Five to seven years, no, you won't have that. And for us, that's a game over in this situation, because the moment the third conflict appears, let's say, in Baltic countries, all these shells will be going there, not, not to us. And that's it. Okay, let me clarify that once more. Do you think Russia is capable to pull through such a multi-theater warfare? Of course they are. Listen, and I'll draw you a couple of basic scenarios. They do not need to capture half an Estonia or full, full uh, Baltic area. How much Russian population is in, in Narva? Different data, but they're saying about 90%, right? Russian-speaking population in Narva. So imagine one morning there is a Russian flag or flag of some independent Narva Republic and Russian-speaking Narva citizens are saying, well, you know, we historically want to connect our roots with Russia. And then they have volunteers, you know, it's the same scenario, very familiar with those uh, black and orange stripes, ribbons. And Russia comes to the border and says, we're not fighting with Estonia, we're just defending the right of Russians to be with Russia. Even Aristovich says he's Russian, right? So, and then something happens, some explosion or some conflict, and some of these uh, pro-Russia people in Narva get killed. And then they establish blog posts and they block Estonian police or armed forces because, hey, you are killing Russians here. You are NATO scumbags who are killing us, and we always knew that that will be this. And the crisis happens in Estonia or whichever country we pick, and the crisis ensues in NATO. No jets are shooting missiles at Estonia, nobody is breaking through Suvalki corridor. There's just a tank division on the border and probably 40,000 troops on the front, from our front drawn to the border with Estonia. Right? Not a problem. Leningrad military district together with Moscow conjointly stand by and watch closely what's happening in now Russian Narva, what NATO will be doing kick them out with force, and here is the political or crisis growing to, into a military one. While they'll be figuring out, and Portuguese, Estonians and everybody else will be figuring out, do they have to fight for Narva? And then all of a sudden, the same thing can happen in Latvia. On one of the border towns, they can raise new flags and say, we are uh, Russians, we have a right to define where we are, so Estonia identified as a separate country and they separated from Russia and now we Russians who live here want to separate from Estonia and go back to Russia. And the same principle, right? Kosovo, etc. We'll do a referendum here, right? And then you have another 50,000 or even 30 on the border, just across the border. They don't even need to go into the country. There could be some jets flying, bombers flying by with, let's say, nukes aboard. In Belarus, there could be a training of some tactical groups. There is Russian group exercising next to Suvalki corridor. And the moment that happens, or perhaps they, that is addressed, Pridnistrovia and Transnistria flares up and they want to join Russia again. And then Romania flares up. Why do you think they'll be rattling Baltic countries, Romania and Poland? These are the neighbors through which the arms are flowing into Ukraine. And they'll be facing a real ultimatum. And how will that mighty West react to this? They'll get the jets up in the sky and send them towards Russia? Putin might say, okay, let's go, radioactive dust, and let's see what happens. And that's it. They can create political crisis in NATO, the heaviest one that will finish this organization, or create the most difficult threat since the moment of its existence without putting any Russian soldier on their territory by hybrid means, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Transnistria and the others. And I can draw more scenarios here. So that is a Gerasimov doctrine, right? The beginning of this uh, hybrid warfare and then... Oh, it's even for before him. It's Lenin's doctrine. He was the inventor of this and they're just using his strategy. Lenin lived a lot in the West and he calculated how to break the West most effectively. 
because if we're going to that discussion, this is continuation of the Westfall peace agreements. There was an interesting principle there after all the religious warfare. The principle installed was who's the duke? He is the installing the belief. As the duke, uh, so is the belief. But they fail to understand that this principle has a reversed side. That now the belief and religion is not important. The power is important. Lenin understood that from the power point of view, and he posted that in terms of power. And they basically said any matter should be addressed from the political angle, starting with uh, strikes on the factory and working with the uh, working people, working class, proletariat. And the doctrine sounds like any matter should be twisted to be political question. Be it ecological, Greta Thunberg, ecological uh, in terms of Green Party, right, or LGBT, again goes into politics. So the rights of Russian minorities in Norway immediately becomes the matter of power. They don't even need to join Russia, they can declare a very small Narva People's Republic. And that's exactly how it will go. And it'll be, you know, maybe a couple hundred tanks and 60,000 infantry across the border watching closely what's happening with Narva Republic. And these military districts that Russia is redistricting now is done exactly for that. So why do I need such an excursion where we usually go with Yulia Latinina into? Because that principle is very important, uh, an important principle of how Putin fights this war with the West. The system that the West has established, all the systems of international relations, the legal base between, behind that, all their political logic, the logic of these wokeisms and all, it is essentially Lenin, Trotsky logic. And the construction of the Western world at large on the level of philosophy, on the level of international relations and politics, has a very global time-ticking bomb against which Neither bombers nor nationalizations of companies or any other measures will work. Only the shift of paradigm will help. And until they figure out that, Russia, China or Global South, anyone who will be strong enough to be an opponent, will have a very strong instrument against the West, using West's own software and the political thought of the West, the core of the Western worldview, to attack that West. We're being killed with our own feathers, right, the Greeks' uh, proverbs. So Russia is not inventing anything new. They're just exploiting the glitch in the Western software that was uh, implanted there back in 1648. And I'm surprised they're doing it so slow, and they're slow to think, so that Russian viewers would not be too giddy listening to us. You guys do not have brains, really. Do not boast much when I'm drawing these scenarios for you. The fact that I'm drawing that out, first you'll need to realize that in your mind and then even try to implement a fraction of it in practice. So you're dumb enough uh, with your hands growing out of your butts, but in general, yes, you're moving in that direction. That's why I'm <laughs> sending a message to Putin's side, because some of them are already thinking they have won. Problem is, we have dumb politicians here and corrupt politicians here in Ukraine. We have corrupt politicians in the West and not bright either. Russia has exact same politicians, but Russia is moving in their direction, is following their vector, because they are making the right conclusions from this war, even though they are slow and ineffective, and we are not. Because even if there are only 5% seeing situation more realistic, better than we are, right, because they are also they're, they're clumsy. On one side they are liberals, on the other side they are realists, but generally in their internal fight and misunderstanding and dumbness and all the weird things that they create with their atrocious laws, they still move by maybe an inch in the right direction for them. And the fact that Karganov and some other of the philosophers on their side are already declaring it means that the brightest of them already get the idea. It'll take some time for the rest to catch up and some cleansing to do more among Putin's leadership, but because the, the proper push on the West is possible only when the elites are consolidated. But then this year have, has all the chances of becoming a decisive one in the destiny of the whole Western civilization. 
So you're looking at the externalities and making these conclusions, right? And that they are moving in that direction because they really don't have other paths. Well, yeah, first of all, they're pushed by the real interests that exist. Then their propaganda and their insignia on their banners and the worldview that they practice and understanding of that Katihan, the shining city on the hill against all the darkness. Uh, that's how they see themselves. That's the different level of understanding, different angle on this world. And they have a very strong resentment brooding in the country because the West in 91 declared that it's the end of history and we have won and Russians are not capable of defeating the West anymore. These guys are looking for revenge. They want to defeat the West and want to be acknowledged as equals, which I want to say will never happen, but they want to try to try that. So what's their advantage over us is that they are an empire. They've always sucked the best brains into their system and their school is definitely a much higher level than ours. I'm clashing now with one of the serious Russian ideologists in the discussion. Should I am right, that guy? Um, he's the politologist and ideologue of the Putin's party, joint Russia. And basically we're bringing up the discussion. I think I invoked the discussion on the key matter of this war. Who is Russian? That's exactly what we are fighting for. That's when the Mahachkala Accord forbade you from calling, being, calling yourself Russian. Well, yeah, that was a funny meme. Right, in return, Kiev and the court forbade Maristovich to call himself a Mahachkala citizen. Anyway, just read the level of commentaries that they have and that we have under our posts. This is a conversation of dumb second graders with a professor from Moscow University regardless of how painful it is. It's the imperial school in them. Even after all the mistakes and all the repressions they've done and the general dumbness, the level is still higher there. And with all the corrupt, uh, corruption, with all the drawbacks they have on the long distance, this level, this difference makes itself known. And we're not pulling through strong enough because in our channels, in our telegram communications, besides the news, we're still talking trash. And Russia has more resources, and they're ready, generally, to oppose the West. We would be ready to oppose Russia, and we are opposing them, but we don't have nukes, and we don't have resources that big. I'm just frankly surprised that they're using their advantages so slow. They're serious, uh, seriously slow guys in this case. But regardless, they're moving in the direction that they intended too. And it will be very difficult for us in the West to cope with that at the end. So, Alexei, the question about heightened expectations, this is only one position, right? I have a lot of them that I read through. Perhaps let me read through all of them and you just give a diagnosis to all that, because I don't even know what how to explain that. Well, first of all, the president said that we're still preparing counteroffensive. When we do not have shells, he is talking about that and uh, the critical aid is slacking and we don't have enough material support and yet we announce the counteroffensive and the president is doing that from his pulpit then there's also Mikhail Podolyak who came out and said that also in this week that the end of this war can be only in one fashion the fold of the Russian front on the Russian side and their tactical defeat in Ukraine and here we are discussing the real circumstances. On the last stream, you said out front that the collapse of our front line may happen in the next three months, right? Meanwhile, Podolyak comes out and says that we're expecting crash, but uh, the front will crash on the Russian side. This is like an exact opposite vector to what you're saying. Let's comment on this first, then there'll be more heightened expectations from the guys who are not related with the current power and they're more connected to the previous president but we'll talk about them later what do you think about all these stories about us preparing counteroffensive and we are fighting for the crash of the front line on the russian side well we talked about that nikolai besides these reasons that we talked that we are the hostages of our own propaganda and likes and 
incapable of stating the truth because we'll have to answer questions. How did we bring it to that point? There is also an eternal carrot that is being dangling in front of us by the West. For example, Johnson's statement when he visited Kiev on the 9th of April in 2022. He said, we're a thousand percent going to be with you. Not a hundred, a thousand percent. And I brought 120 armored vehicles. All right, that'll be enough equipment for one brigade. In the biggest warfare in Europe, these vehicles will likely be destroyed in about a month of fighting the war. Anything else? Did you bring anything else for us? What else is about a thousand percent? But our people at large become very happy. And don't look into details. Then Rishi Sunak comes in and says, yeah, we're always with you. We'll be with you to the end. And our people are saying, well, then we'll probably be able to organize the counteroffensive. But then Scholz comes out and says, well, we will not transfer Taurus missiles to Ukraine because this will mean a war with Russia. Because Russians said that if Taurus will be given to Ukraine, then Ukraine will likely destroy Crimean Bridge. And Russia prom promised that they will start shooting up some Germany targets. So where is German resolve that NATO will be protecting them. Here's an ultimatum, right? We talked about ultimatum. People who don't believe in nuclear ultimatum and the West that the West will bend facing it. Today, Germany gave up to Russian Federation when facing the ghostly threat that it will have certain conventional, not even nuclear, but conventional weapons threat to Germany if they transfer several dozen of these missiles to Ukraine. And this is the country of NATO, a key country of European Union, which, for which defense the whole NATO should come out after such an ultimatum. Imagine during Reagan times, if Soviet Union would put an ultimatum to Germany, NATO would come out, Reagan would come out and say, okay, we're preparing a nuclear hit on Russia. Perhaps Trump could have done that these days if that wasn't his interests, but nobody else really. Germany recently folded, being faced not even with a nuclear ultimatum, but just some ghostly threat of using cruise missiles at uh, German factories. So that's the story for you. That's what's going to happen when Russia will put an ultimatum with nukes. And I can only feel for Mikhail Podolak when who will have to come out and then say something else about counteroffensive in 2025. Well, if Germany maybe gives us all their weapons, perhaps we can do something. Otherwise, I don't see how we can do it. Listen, I don't understand, Alexei, why do they have to say that? Nobody is forcing them to say make these statements, right? They are, are the politicians in Ukraine. Well, it's a simple thing. They are being dangled a carrot, and they are dangling a carrot in front of their people, because if they stop doing it, then people for a couple of weeks will be going through a severe hangover, but then they'll post a question. Wait, if there is no counteroffensive and we're just defending and slowly retreating, where is the whole story going? And what is the statement about counteroffensive? It basically tells that, okay, yeah, we're withdrawing now, but we'll take it back. All these statements that, yeah, we've lost Avdivka, but we will take it back for sure. And that then people continue drinking beer and saying, oh, okay, we'll take it back, no biggie. But if you make a statement that we will not take it back, or in the next couple dozen years, we will not be able to take it. That's a whole other conversation. So to avoid this conversation, they are engaged in direct deceiving of their people with these patriotic slogans. And they're not saying that they're deceiving people. They're explaining it to themselves as they're precluding foreign uh, PSYOP, Russian PSYOP, to penetrate their brains. Well, if you need to support your spirit to fight with a PSYOP, with another PSYOP and deceiving yourself, this is a very bad spirit. It's a bad perspective. And now again, Russia has a strategy and resources, and they're ready to raise the bar and raise the stakes. We do have the same desire in Ukraine. We can raise the stakes, and we have a so-so strategy fighting to the last person, but we don't have resources. And the West has resources, but they have no strategy, and they don't want to raise the stakes. So who has the advantages in this situation? This can be solved very simply, by the way. If the West would transfer a lot of resources to us, we definitely could have changed the situation and would have at least stalled this whole war, after which you can sign some peace treaties. But they're not doing that. They're preventing us from stopping Russia militarily. 
and they're not preventing that possible Narva scenario in Estonia, they Scholz already demonstrated they are not going to fight. And the second moment, or that they will to a certain degree after which they'll surrender, and they're not giving us the resources, then what can we do? All right, so again, if you look at the people who are making decisions today in Ukraine, understandably why they're making these decisions, perhaps it's their only strategy for them to survive as political power and save their positions, then I do not understand why people supporting a previous president are doing the same thing. Gancherenko, our congressman, in his interview to CNN, if United States will ever need soldiers in other wars who will be standing with them shoulder to shoulder in the same trench in Tehran, I don't think many nations are ready for that. Ukrainians are ready. We Ukrainians are ready to fight shoulder to shoulder with United States in the trenches near Tehran, North Korea or China. We do not care where. So such a degree of pathos. It's difficult to imagine, right? It's probably, this equation is probably missing aliens also. Why? What for? Can you explain me the logic? Goncharenko supposedly is not mad. Well, he may not be mad and he might know two languages perfectly. People are saying French and English. But the pressing ideology and life principles force him to, how should I put it, supposedly smart man to make absolutely dumb statements. Our representative in Europe and the congressman doesn't understand what is he saying, I think, because the conclusion from that speech is that because of his work and his appeals, the country is turning into the big private military corporation that can fight on the fronts around the world. Because we are not military allies, we're partners, strategic partners, but we're not allies with the United States. Allies are the ones who fight jointly. We do not have anything like that. And all these uh, scary appeals exist only on the background, by the way, that the United States do not see us as the war partner. The French did. French did ask us to fight here and there, but the United States didn't. So we are ready, but is the West ready? <laughs> is the West ready to stay in the trenches of Pyongyang? One of the bigger issues that the West is not ready to fight any of these wars. And yeah, we can run there to Tehran and all of a sudden find ourselves there alone again and the West didn't come. So this is a very strange statement, but not to say worse. But there is a direct deceiving of our people on this uh, patriotic screams and uh, false statements. It's uh, deceiving of people live on camera day after day. So you're implying that Gancherenko is probably pushed by some good aspirations? I can even allow that uh, he probably believes all that. But then it raises a question, is his analytical capacity sharp? Because I would probably not want to have this person in the office, because then you may find yourself in the trenches of Tehran alone and nobody else is there. Well. He is also falsifying the capabilities of our military, right? Because he, his statement says that we are ready to not only defend ourselves, but also fight other wars. Yeah, the country is in a state of uh, social schizophrenia, Nikolai. Every family has somebody fighting in the army. I'm not even talking about many families who have lost people. Everybody knows our current state of affairs. 30 to 70% of refusers on the front who don't want to go in the trenches. What Tehran are we talking about? What fucking Tehran, when our army has to use outdated equipment, RPD outdated machine gun of 1946, 20 fighters holding a kilometer of front because of lack of rotation. We have to amputate fingers and toes of soldiers after they get frostbitten because we do not provide them enough warm dress, warm clothes. Our country is in a schizophrenic situation especially in the fields of collective subconsciousness and political consciousness. And it needs to be treated, but you can treat it only with truth, and I'm glad we have this opportunity. Indeed. Mustafa Jamilov, the last of uh, the Mohicans, 
about the heightened expectations. He said this, Dear citizens of Crimea, Russian citizens who moved to Crimea after it was occupied, he called them all the words and then says that there are all reasons to believe that this will be the last year of Crimea occupation. So again, why? What for? What's the goal? Maybe he got some secret mystery that he knows that tomorrow will be given 500 Atacams and Tauruses that will break the Crimean bridge and win. Perhaps that's the carrot that we're being promised. And we promised a lot of packages of weapons if Russia will continue to refuse to negotiate. Okay, imagine we got 500 missiles and we destroyed everything in Crimea, broke the bridge, and even destroyed some targets in Russia. Tehran can give Russia a thousand missiles that fly for a thousand kilometers. Uh, people are saying that they transferred already. Well, yeah, our intel service did not confirm it though, but there are rumors. So we use 500 of Western missiles on them, they use a thousand on us. What next? Big losses on both sides, the war becoming more and more bloody, and it, it is becoming bloody. You see the executions of our prisoners of war on the Russian side. And there was uh, a lot of people being killed in the cities and a lot of refugees. So we're hating each other even more after these missile exchanges. What next? Is the war over? No. No. It cannot be over with that juxtaposition of resources. It will continue. We're being given a little bit, so we stand. And uh, Russia has enough resources to slowly push. And we're going back to the beginning of this equation. And Karaganov said exactly that. Let's skip another three years of squabbling this step and then go to the nuclear escalation, because all these individual skirmishes and scenarios will end up in the nuclear ultimatum. And they will not be giving ultimatum to us, not to Ukraine. They'll give it to the West. They really, by the way, secretly, in secret while nobody listens to us, they think of us as their own. And they treat us harshly because that's the way they treat themselves too. The majority of them thinks that we are just alike. We're just lost, but we're alike. And they'll give an ultimatum to the West. And now it's a scary war, Nikolai, and I'll give you the main sign that will make people think. It's the first war since 1945 where the loss of civilian life is less than the loss of military. There are no other wars after 1945 with that statistics. This is a very strange story. When I saw that, I understood that the character of this war is radically different from what our propaganda, their propaganda, and the Western propaganda is stating. In all the wars since 1945, the losses of civilians were much higher than military. We have lost a lot of civilians, but they are still much less than military. What if we count Mariupol, because they destroyed the whole city into rubble? They did, right. But overall, despite big tragedies and certain excesses when they were blowing up the civilian buildings. Overall, the number of civilians dying is smaller. In Vietnam, the stat was that for one military killed, there were 28 civilians killed. In Afghanistan, similar fashion, for one Mujahideen, probably 10 to 15 civilians. And with all the due respect to Israel, let's see how many Hamas fighters died in sector Gaza, were killed in sector Gaza, and how many civilians uh, were killed. And that given that Israel is really being careful about how to do that. And we have a military paradox here, despite all the tortures, executions, rapes, and prisons, and destroyed Mariupol. Overall, if you take overall stats, the losses of civilian life is much smaller than the military number. How did that happen? I don't know, I don't uh, quite agree with the estimation that Russia is preserving civilians. Overall they do, Nikolai, just by numbers. You take the top losses on Mariupol, 125,000, right, plus 25 or 30,000 dead in other locations, 150,000, right, over two years of war. Look at the losses in the sector Gaza after four months of war and look at the numbers of Hamas fighters killed versus the numbers of civilian lives. Just the ratio, not the absolute numbers, but one to how many. And I've studied the history of war and conflicts, I want to say. Vietnam, a real number. For one killed uh, northern Vietnamese or partisan, it was about 20-something civilians 
Korea, don't quite remember, but same proportion. Civilians are dying more than military. Much more. It's times more than military. Not just 125,000 for 100,000, but times that. And this war, and I'm not trying to whitewash Russians, I'm just trying to bring in interesting statistics that I discovered that needs to be understood, because it does change the character of war and how we think about it. We are destroying fewer of their civilians, right, there are people dying in Belgorod and other places, but very few. None of the sides went for destruction of civilians just for the heck of it, right? Mariupol is probably the biggest tragedy, but this is the only tragedy of that scale. There are no other tragedies repeated like that. Yes, they've destroyed Papasna, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, Bakhmut, but civilians have left them. We do not know the exact losses, but we know there is no times more civilians lost than uh, military lives. And this war is different, it is strange. That's why I'm bringing it up and saying, look at this, this is interesting. And I'm setting a hypothesis here that the sides generally somehow spare their civilians. Of course, there will be exacerbations, but at large, neither us nor them are going for killing civilians at large. And in all other wars, including the war that Soviet Union was doing in Afghanistan, for example, there were more civilians dying. Because while nobody is listening to us, nobody considered their opponents to be humans. Americans did not think high of the Northern Vietnamese, and we did not think high, Soviet Union didn't think high of the Afghanistans. For one dead soldier, Soviet Union would destroy the village with bombs. Americans did the same in uh, Vietnam, and we did the same in Afghanistan. But that base hypothesis that I propose is that if we're not considering the other side the same, we still consider the other side to be humans. Despite the excesses of cutting heads and all the atrocities, this war still has very interesting statistics. I'm just throwing in the first hypothesis of what could it mean, but it deserves a deeper look into that. And I'm quite sure there will not be a nuclear hit on Ukraine, but there will be a threat to the West. That definitely warrants consideration. I will take a pause personally. Right, Nikolai, I only dropped this as a problem to think about. That deserves attention. All right, let's go take a look at the United States of America about their estimations. There was a statement in Pentagon that if the chamber, the lower chamber, the Congress will not sign the package of aid to Ukraine, Ukraine will have to resign itself to figuring out how much they can hold with what they have and which cities do they have to abandon. I would treat that phrase as a torture because it seems like nobody is uh, going to sign that package according to the analytical estimations and yet to come out with that that we should not be waiting for that American aid. It will not come, they will not be able to sign it. All that Russell will not come to any fruition and Pentagon is winking at the moment that Ukraine needs to somehow still consider that this aid may come. Yeah, I do think this is a sort of a torture. They, that's how they think, right? It came to the media besides the Real media publications, they finally have some real behind-the-doors conversations leaking into the sphere that Ukraine will have to consider which cities they will have to abandon. They uh, deceived us, indeed, and they left us standing there alone, and they threw us to fight for the goals that uh, they declared, but they don't want to. Like NATO unity or European unity. What unity are we talking about when Germany is folding under Russian pressure on terraces? And um, now it's the, yeah, the usual, we have no money, but you hold on and make a decision where you'll hold the front line where you can. The concessions are inevitable, what they say. They're not going to do anything about that. And uh, how do our statements look on that background? Well, our statements by president and his office that we'll get the aid and we'll get to the borders of 91, we'll go into counteroffensive, right? 
right, Alexei will counteroffensive, will collapse Russian front, will deoccupy Crimea, right? Very not sober statements, I would say. Um, liberal politics. Ukraine is operating in the liberal paradigm, and liberal paradigm implies a lot of fiery speeches about freedoms, rights, honesty, transparency, but there is an interesting drawback. It doesn't have any goal. There is no end goal with the liberal politics. They cannot set the question of goals and purposes because the final goal of liberal politics, at the core of what they are declaring, the victory of everybody over everybody, of light, uh, kindness and justice over everything, and destruction of all the mechanisms and defending of the rights of everybody. It's like Trotskyist ideas looming over that. And the goals of freedom of trade, freedom of shipping, they're not setting them up properly. And they're basically setting the questions that they're fighting a war of democracy versus barbarianism, and they think war is an atrocity that should not be, and they're trying to get rid of war. And that's why you can hear from America very often that the war should not be. They're doing all the effort to keep the war within the frame of Ukraine or within the frame of Israel so it doesn't spill over. So when the war ensues, when the war continues, you have only a couple options to fight or to surrender. They're not looking at that. And we are fighting this war here and we're not studying the history well. We're all running with Snyder and his statements, but you're forgetting all about the book that he wrote about Ukraine, Bloody Lands. We are the country that lives at the break of geopolitical tectonic plates. And we are the country who set our own politics against the push of the neighbor country that is eager to destroy us for our politics. We destroyed our industry, we destroyed our military-industrial complex in the meantime. We lost our military capacity and we did not prepare between 2014 and 2022. We failed to learn to derive the lessons from it. These country, countries like that, they do not survive. How can we be talking these things and Americans are telling us, think about which cities you'll surrender, and we're talking about counteroffensive and liberating Crimea. And then, right, we'll jump into Tehran and Pyongyang trenches. Exactly. So, I was bothered by a story this week that New York Times published about the aid to a senator. He is under prosecution or investigation after his actions of support to Ukraine. Somebody named Kyle Parker delivered uh, sniper equipment to Ukraine as his personal initiative, and investigators are telling that he may have some issues with uh, the intel services who are investigating him. And according to news, Kyle Parker was uh, openly making statements against Russia for a while, and now he's being investigated about his trips to Ukraine and providing sniper equipment to Ukraine for the amount of, oh my God, 30,000 to Ukrainian military. I think this is a shot, if not in your foot, then if not in Ukrainians directly. So here's an American trying to help our armed forces and today he's under investigation in the United States. How do we understand that? I do not understand these politics. Well, one needs to get the whole depth of information because the short notice doesn't allow to judge everything. But the fact that a volunteer, high-positioned volunteer, went to help Ukraine and now he's under investigation, that does pose the question, how much do they want to support us if they're investigating them? They're not uh, taking him into court yet, but still. And um, I don't know what exactly they're going after, corruption or something that he shouldn't be doing by his position, but the fact remains, liberal paradigm is hopeful to get rid of war. So what they will be doing, they will always be shrinking their military, they'll be punishing those who'll be talking about war or 
warning about wars or talking about the inevitability of war. They even forbade the word war after 45. Now all the wars are called special operations or anti-terrorist operations. When the war is being pushed outside the framework, it becomes ugly, like everything else that you push outside of your conscience. The paradox is that only acknowledging war and inevitability of it in some cases, it has a chance to remain civilized. Because when it's pushed beyond the framework, it becomes real ugly. So here is liberalism that pushes the war out as a fact, and uh, they turn it into very ugly, and that ugliness walks on people's lives and minds, and now it touched even the high-ranking bureaucrat in Washington, who spent his own money to help Ukraine, as he understood, was okay. Did you see the post by the volunteer, British volunteer, who is a medic here in the front, turning to his people? He is saying, you hypocritic creatures, what are you doing? Horrible things are happening in Ukraine, you're feeding them fairy tales, not doing anything serious, cannot protect yourselves and cannot defend Ukraine, of course. And that's the scream of a person who is transporting wounded and killed. It's British medic, not Aristovich and Feldman, the guy fighting in the front. That was his estimation. All right, I wanted you to maybe spare a minute to comment on the question about Poland. We have a question. Whether the Poles are afraid of Russian attack. And I think an important parameter to keep in mind, probably answering some of the behavior that's happening on the border and in some parts of inside Poland, almost a half, 47 point, 5% of uh, polled polls consider the following reality that the war will last long and will result in mutual destruction of Ukraine and Russia. So that's probably answering why polls behave like that, because they think this war will not touch on them. Like uh, Russian Vatniks, yeah, kinda. Like Russian Vatniks Putin, in Russia, those would be the ones supporting Putin blindly. This is, um, I guess, for a certain group of Poles, this is uh, two obstacles that they see, Ukraine and Russia. So if half of the Poled population thinks so indeed, then we probably need to rethink the position of Poland in our external politics of Ukraine. And our bouquets and uh, candy period is over, dating period is over, so now it's probably time to really reconsider seriously our relations and that's regardless of those monopolists and some issues about the trade of grain it's probably time to review the attitude to poland and not even to their politics but to their public opinion because the president of poland did mention today that if uh, polish and ukrainian peoples will quarrel this will be the worst situation and the politicians are probably right in their estimations, but these public polling are at least concerning. What would you advise to the politicians in Poland about this issue? What can they do to somehow call this trend? Well, for that you need to say a very scary thing. People, we are next, and the more Russian army will bog down in Ukraine, the higher probability that fewer Poles will die as the result of this conflict. So we need to concentrate our efforts to make sure that uh, everything that we can is sent to the front over there. But unfortunately, they cannot find these words, seems like. They're also stuck in that same liberal paradigm. We have a lot more news, Alexei, and they're about the same, roughly, plus minus. And don't want to chew on that more, we've been long enough on that stream. Thank you very much for that stream, first of all. Second, do not forget to support the fundraiser, 132nd Reconnaissance Battalion on Kherson direction, is doing the fundraiser for the vehicle that was, uh, the previous one was already destroyed, so they need another one. This is the real hard help you can provide at a certain part of the front that saves lives and helps us to fight. Every hryvna, every cent, every dollar helps. And, Nikolai, I want to make one more statement before we conclude. You know what bothers me? I did mention about this before, but um, I want to say it again. So, and it's the Poland that uh, rubbed me wrong. We 
have a general dilemma. We either find ways to do the peace agreement or to really ramp everything up and go prepare for a big war. And that's what many people are saying now, there as well in the West. Now Alexei Navalny was killed. May he rest in peace. On the Munich Security Conference, Yulia Navalny is being met with triumph. She picks up the banner and um, she's being compared to the top-level politicians. The West is uh, carrying Yulia with like a new figure, new leader. And my question is, what are the relations between Russian opposition and Ukrainian authorities? And what is the position of the West in this regard? Because in the first approach, the first interest of Russian opposition is to stop Putin militarily or destroy him militarily at the front. Because all tasks of the Russian opposition about the beautiful Russia of the future, they can only happen or have a chance for success if Putin will be stopped or destroyed in Ukraine. Otherwise, Russian opposition has zero chances. If he wins or at least doesn't lose, they have zero chances, period. So regardless of how brave and uh, passionate she is, Alexei himself and his wife and the others, they only have one force that can do the major work for them, armed forces of Ukraine, Ukraine defense forces. And now we have a question. Is the West pointing or advising in that direction, who is uh, receiving Yulia on all the highest levels? Are they advising Russian opposition that their hope is in the Ukraine? All the Baltic countries, all the Poles, what are they telling her? From my point of view, they need to be telling her that, and Yulia needs to understand that herself, that we need to increase aid to Ukraine. Because otherwise, it may turn out that Yulia Navalny and her staff will have no country to hide. Because wherever they go, there'll be a nuclear ultimatum imposed over that country. And even that was separated on the Munich conference, the question of Russian opposition and aid to Ukraine. But the best they could have done should have been talking about joining these things together, because war is a concentration of effort. And if there is something that is ready to resist Putin, then Russian opposition should be also focused laser sharp on the same point. They are pumping up a new figure, and I can only welcome that, that the wife picked up the banner of their fallen husband, and there are people consolidating around her, and she has good chances of being a new leader. But what's the next move? What she will call for, what they will do, and that inability to see their direct interests. And nobody is hiding anything. Russians are saying out front that you guys will be gone, we'll put a nuclear ultimatum soon, and we'll get our payback for 30 years of defeat after 1991. Even that doesn't push them to make certain conclusions and take certain actions. But what I'm saying that too is that if the closest interests are not being recognized between Russian opposition and Ukraine armed forces, direct, very direct interest, how can we get to the interests of Ukraine and Poland, which are more convoluted? How else can we find other connections that are more convoluted than that? This is just an easy example. The simple direct interests are not being recognized, and interests of the second or third tier are being recognized far less. We are just not exactly lucky. There is no Thatcher, there is no Reagan, there is just an asset of idiots with sweet liberal mantras. All right, Alexei, you uh, stirred me here. Now, since uh, you did touch upon Navalny, I have one more question. Kirill Budanov, our Intel Services Head, uh, Military Intel, he said that he confirms that Navalny died from a blood clot. What was the purpose of that? Where did he send that ball for? You know, that's the problem. Biden, before him, came out and said, we will avenge, uh, our sanctions will be crushing, we'll respond to Navalny's situation and his murder. And one of uh, his partners come out, comes out, right, our head of the intel, military intel, comes out, shrugs his shoulders and said, well, yeah, he died of natural causes, big deal. How does that look in the eyes of Americans and the others? I, I'm still, yeah, failing to understand that, Alexei, if there is any logic or maybe I'm not seeing it. No, I think that's inability to hold the punch when uh, a lot of journalists are attacking you. So probably a typical discommunication. You as a journalist know how difficult it may be to hold a press conference. And 
It's only those people who haven't given a single interview. It's not so difficult to talk, right? It's it's easy to talk. It's not like fighting in the trench. And it's not like unloading the heavy sex of something from the rail car. Well, yeah, give it a shot. Try to speak live. And I think he failed to be fast on his uh, legs and give a proper answer or not give an answer that uh, probably was not warranted. But I can say that in the United States and the official circles, it was received with a very high degree of surprise, to put it mildly. All right, on that strange note, all that strange stream, we'll wrap it up about, right, about this strange reality and this strange planet, exactly. Thank you, everybody who was with us, and see you in a week. Have a quiet night. Goodbye.